Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be in the studio today doing something a little bit different than we normally do. I have two guests with me, and my first is Patsy Doerr. Patsy is the Global Head of Corporate Responsibility and Inclusion. Uh, for Thomson Reuters. And we also have joining us by phone, Dave Curran. And Dave is the Global Director for Risk and Compliance for Thomson Reuters. Welcome to the show, Patsy. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And David, I'm glad we were finally able to pull this together. I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Um, I wanted to start with uh, a little bit of a background on the two of you for our listeners so they have an idea of where um, you both came from and, and what led you to the positions that you hold today. So, Patsy, we'll start with you. Talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and some of the jobs you had prior to your uh, position with, with Thompson Reuters. Okay, sure. Happy to. Glad to be here. Uh, so I grew up in a very small town called Manhattan <laughs> many, many, many years ago. Of course, I'm lying about my age now. Um, but um, I went to an all-girls high school in Manhattan, which I now sit on the board of. So that was actually a big defining experience for me in terms of building confidence as a woman and as a girl at the time. And so then I went to college, actually, at an all-men's college in Virginia. So I was a second class of women, where we had 200 women and 1,400 men, which, of course, I receive a lot of sarcastic comments about. But the reality is it was a great experience to start something new, start something afresh, and really you know, begin to have a new experience coming from this all-girls to this all-men's experience which provided a good backdrop for my career because I ended up going initially into sales mm -hmm. and then into investment banking, where I right. spent the past 20 years, really, um, building from the ground up talent and development functions for investment banks around the globe. So I was at J.P. Morgan in New York, Deutsche Bank in London, and Credit Suisse between New York and Hong Kong. And then I was recruited by Thomson Reuters, actually, three years ago, almost to the day, to come and take on diversity and inclusion, which linked very nicely to the whole talent portfolio of which my experience was based, but I also have my master's in talent and adult education. And then very recently in the past year, they asked me to also take on corporate responsibility and sustainability. But I would say based on that background, a couple things. First of all, every role I've ever taken has been a brand new role. It's been a build out or a build up. I don't take existing roles and that's a deliberate career move on my part. And I also have always taken the opportunity to find international experiences as, as much as possible and continue to do so. Yeah, great, great. David, how about you? Can you give us just a, a snippet of your of your background as well? Sure. I grew up in um, a smaller town than Manhattan uh, in New York um, <laughs> with a mother and sister and um, now have a, a proud father of three daughters. Um, and I'm a lawyer by training, and I started as a litigator in New York City and uh, have had a variety of legal and business roles. I've been a general counsel and chief compliance officer of several publicly traded companies, and um, I've also run um, four technology companies uh, before coming to Thomson Reuters. And like Patsy, um, I have purposefully taken on uh, although I did not, I, I did not go to an all-girls school <laughs> or an all-boys school. Um, I've purposely taken on some challenging roles, some roles that um, uh, at the uh, at first at first blush 
uh, were didn't seem like great roles that have really helped me benefit my career both internationally and and in the U.S. I've lived in several different areas, including Europe, and have traveled extensively. and And uh, I'm very excited to be part of the program. Well, you know what? Uh, I One of the questions I had, and I was going to save it for later in the show, but I think I'm going to ask it now, um, just so the listeners in the audience know why, um, you know, you're joining us here today, David, is is your interest um, in women in leadership. And I think it would be great to start out with what it was. It, was there a defining moment for you other than having a sister, you know, and a mother that propelled you to kind of take on this cause to to encourage more women to be leaders. What was yeah. that moment for you? Well, I think it does date back a very long time, Sue. The, my mom was an immigrant here from Ireland, and um, um, the only jobs that she was able to get were secretarial and, and office work, and my sister as well. And I, I recall just early on um, feeling very bad for the way they were treated, and as almost second-class citizens to to work on behalf of of men. And you would think that in 2014, things would have changed dramatically. But I hear stories on a regular basis and see um, women who are who are disadvantaged in different in different organizations and and dynamics. And as I as I look to help my daughters, who are two of whom are in in college, um, assume you know roles in business. Um, I'm, I'm very much a, a, a believer that uh, you know, the men in the world who still dominate management and boards have to take a very, very active role in helping the careers um, and, um, and other opportunities for women. So um, I've, I've seen this you know, in the legal profession as an example, despite the fact that about 50% of law school classes are made, you know, comprised of women, you today, if you look at law firms and in-house legal departments, still most general counsels and most managing partners of law firms are, are men by far. And still boards today are dominated by, by men versus women. And I, I've, I, found, I find this both intriguing and frustrating. So that, that's what brought me to want to be interested in this program. Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I'm so appreciative of your viewpoint, you know, as a man who's been um, in the positions that you have that you see the need. Um, Patsy, one of the things that, you know, we talk about all the time in here is women in leadership, but why it's important. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to just say it's not fair, you know, that there's more men in top spots. Let's talk about some of the reasons why it's very, why it's important and what the advantages will be for companies who um, you know allow for that diversity? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, I think I think we're in a really interesting space right now because I think corporations, individuals, investors, regulators, and others are starting to realize that there's a real business case for this. Right? This is not just a nice to do or the right thing to do. Although that's part of the effort because it's all about employee engagement as well. But the reality is, if you look at the statistics and you look at the impact on the bottom line, whether it's our stock valuation whether it is actually prices in terms of market valuation, whether it's how regulators view companies in terms of good governance, getting back to David's point about boards. It's all how you evaluate a company in terms of how people invest in it, whether they want to join the organization. And at the end of the day, the more diversity that you have on a board, on a leadership team, or any part of the organization, you're essentially going to get different viewpoints, different perspectives, and that leads to innovation, and that leads to better business results. And if you look more specifically and deep dive into some of the statistics, we know, for example, very specifically, that if you don't have three women on a board, 
you actually don't get the impact or the value of that diversity or that innovation that comes from that. Mm -hmm. So there's some very, very specific things that we can do collectively as a community and as organizations to impact the bottom line there. Right. Um, I think one of the most important things is the idea of mentors um, and sponsors and having people who have kind of been there and done that really pave the way for some of the younger generation coming in, but also people that have been with a corporation and haven't really taken that step, right, to, you know, to promote. Um, And David, I know you wanted to kind of talk about the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. There is a difference. Do you want to speak to that? Sure. So I look at mentors as people who generally have um, more seasoning, have been around longer, who help uh, provide guidance and information as you make your way through your career. And everybody needs mentors. I would urge men and women to seek out and to actively network with people, especially with people who've who've had varying um, career, uh, both career um, interests and and also successes. You know, we learn a lot from things that we don't necessarily succeed at sometimes. And and so mentoring is is that where you've got somebody who's um, you can bounce ideas off of and the like. I, I think that um, in particular for women that I've seen who uh, have been able to move through the ranks in organizations, they've actually had active sponsors, people who've promoted them not just promoted from a, a level to a level, but, but champion their, um, their candidacy for different things. And my experience as a male in dealing with men in the workplace is that we're a bit of a blunt instrument type people. We need to be told directly that um, you need help. And by the way, sponsorship is not just for women. It's, I, I encourage men to do this too, but I, I, I believe that I've seen reluctance uh, on the part of women to actually go for the, what I would describe as the ask. And the ask is, listen, you believe in me, you've said complimentary things about me, and you've given me good advice, but can you actually sponsor me for a project or sponsor me for um, a role that um, we're talking about here? And oftentimes I've seen in those situations where men were, are happy to do that, they just need to be asked. And so active championing versus just giving good advice. Right. That, that's exactly right. It reminds me of something that I read um, actually from the Thomson Reuters website um, that I just thought was very interesting. Um, research suggests that Hispanic women are less likely to see, seek promotions than men and even other women because of cultural cues which frown upon bragging and aggressive self-promotion. And I read that and it really resonated with me because I think it's something that women feel, um, certainly not just Hispanic women, that historically, because of cultural, you know, nuances, um, we will, you know, hesitate, think, worrying about bragging or, or self-promoting when really, in essence, we should be proud and, and sh- you know, speaking on what we've accomplished. Patsy, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I think there's two primary points to that. Um, number one, there's a lot of research done around what's called the imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of women believe that they're not necessarily capable of the role that they're being put in and that they actually feel that they're going to be discovered or found out that they're not actually as good as they are. Right. And there's some great research on that, and I encourage women to read those books because it really talks about how do you actually take that chance and believe in yourself and focus on your strengths and your core competencies and use them to your advantage to avoid the imposter syndrome. 
I mean, I think the second thing is, and as you said, it's not just about Hispanic women or Latin women. It's all women across the board. We have a tendency to take less risk. There's a less risk orientation amongst women when you look at the research across the board. So, for example, when we look at applying for a job, if we look at the job description, women, and they, if we see about 60% of the categories that we meet the criteria for, we're not going to apply for it, whereas a man will. We need to see 90% or more of the criteria apply to us. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. So I encourage women all the time to say, take that risk. Go for it. I mean, you have the core competencies. You may not have all of the domain expertise, but if you can bring that to the table, bring it to the table. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a lot of it. And I also think the third thing is that historically, if you think about women over the years, and I think about my own mother, who also was a, a kind of a pioneer in her age, and I can tell that story later, but, but at the end of the day, it's very much always been this sort of stigma that women who over-self-promote are seen almost as overly aggressive and manly in their approach. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to find that balance between being aggressive, being a promoter, but also maintaining yourself as a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then that speaks to, uh, we often talk about women, we should be able to be who we are, the feminine parts of us, and at the same time be successful and strong. Um, I'd love to hear the, the story of your mother and, and and why she's a pioneer. Can you talk about that? Sure, absolutely. So it's really interesting because I have to I have to be honest about this. So she so she would be 85 if she were alive today, but she died several years ago. But uh, she moved to New York from Kentucky, one of, one of six Irish family, like Dave's, um, one of six children to be a writer. And uh, it was very unusual at that time in the, in the early to mid-50s for a woman to move for a career and mm-hmm. really to come to the States for that reason, to yeah. New York for that reason, with no intention of getting buried or having children, which is interesting since she has four of us now. Um, <laughs> but in any case, shows shows up in New York and literally was tied to this radio uh, bar because she was doing a radio show. She's a journalist. Oh, really? We have it oh, running in our fantastic. family. Absolutely. We've got a couple of them. And so she came to New York for that purpose, met my father here, um, and then and they basically got together. He was a Columbia graduate who was an immigrant son as well, got together and raised their kids in Manhattan. I tell you that because, A, she took that chance early, and B... She really was very, very clear with us. She has three daughters, um, myself being the youngest of the three, that it was really important to, A, pursue your dreams, be aggressive. She was very aggressive, but she was also a Southern woman. So she had that great balance between being very feminine, but very aggressive and proactive in her goals. And she and always- polite. And polite, exactly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> At the same time. Yeah. And so she always said to us, just go for it have the confidence and pursue your dreams. And so we never thought anything about it. Like we always thought, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a working woman. I'm going to be a working mother and I'm just going to go for it. And it wasn't until later in my career that I actually started to experience some of the things Dave mentioned where you see that women weren't moving up the ranks as much as possible, which is when it became more of a passion for myself. Because I never really had an issue when I was younger, never thought about it. You got the messaging. See, you got the messaging from early on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Dave, what are some of the, you know, you mentioned you have three daughters. I'd love to know what um, some of your conversations are with them, uh, some of the things that you say to them to encourage them as well to be leaders in whatever role they're in. Yeah, and I think, and to echo what Patsy's saying, you know, it's sort of, my uh, my wife is, um, uh, she has dual master's degrees and had a very successful external career before she made the conscious choice to um, be a stay-at-home mom. And she's an outstanding, that's an outstanding career and um, uh, for her, and it's done well for our daughters, who have a lot of confidence as a result of that. My wife is a very confident person. and uh, But still, even with that background, um, they will hesitate. I can see, especially 
as they start to develop business networks um, in college. I've talked with them about the fact that people who are now friends in college will later be potential door openers for them in businesses. Mm-hmm. And that it's never too early and it's not self-aggrandizing to establish these kinds of relationships. Um, and I see them slowly learning to do that. I think it's more natural, I've seen from their male counterparts in school, who um, recognize that career track is obvious for them once they leave college. Um, and it's not that my girls don't see that, but it's obvious to the guys that they have to buddy up, so to speak. And um, so I've encouraged my daughters to do just that with their male and female friends, and also to network with with families of the friends who they get together with and who are happy to help them in things like internships and as they begin their career. And I see successful young women today as they leave college and, and maybe graduate programs who've learned to establish these mentor-sponsor relationships very early. Um, my, my experience has been that I think, I think men generally get a very bad rap. Um, uh, there are many bad players and bad actors. I've been subjected to um, uh, to bad bad supervisors and good supervisors who are men. I've been I've had bad and good supervisors who are women. But I think that most people, whether they're male or female, want to help. And um, without being aggressive or pushy or other labels that are put on women in particular, um, they need to reach out early and often to. Um, establish their own credibility. I think that if you just, and this is again not applied to women or men in particular, but if you simply ask for things all the time rather than build trusting and credible relationships, then it's uh, it's less likely that you're going to get the sponsorship we talked about earlier. If in fact you get to know people and you're not coming to them with an ask each time, you'll develop that credibility and they'll be happy to help you and sponsor you later on. A mistake I've seen people make in work is to is just to reach out and ask for something, and often that doesn't work if you don't know them and if you haven't built that trusted relationship. Right. It should always be kind of a two-way street, right? You know, networking gets sometimes has a negative connotation, but it really just is about meeting new people, building new relationships, and, and trying to determine, is there something I can help you with, and maybe you can help me with something. Yeah. Um, Patsy, what do, you know, I know in your position, um, you you do a lot of networking. You know, you do a lot of travel. You're at a lot of different events. What, what's our, what are some of the, I don't want to say tactics, but because it should come naturally, you go out and you are who you are. But with the networking, what are some of the things that you pay attention to so that you're building those relationships and trust? Perfect. Okay. So a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, I do believe wholeheartedly in paying it forward, right? I mean, you have to help people around you. You have no idea if that executive assistant today is going to be the CEO tomorrow. And so I think it's really important when you're out there building networks and building relationships to think about everybody and support everybody. And I think it's uh, Margaret Thatcher who had a wonderful quote about women, and she said that the, there's a place in hell for women that don't help other women, She right? did, yeah, I love that. I love that quote. Yeah, I do too. Right, so it really <laughs> says a lot that you should be helping women, and today's point also, anybody that you work with, frankly, we should be helping each other to grow and expand on a regular basis. So I think that's really important always to be giving back or paying it forward, if you will. 
I think the second thing, and this is more of a tactic. I mean, I, I am a networker by nature, being an extrovert and being a social fanatic. But that aside, I also believe in networking with a purpose. And women historically are not as good at networking with a purpose as men are, right? We're very good at building personal relationships. But we're not necessarily so good about getting out there and saying, okay, I want to meet person X because they know about topic Y and they can help me and others in that way. Mm-hmm. So I always encourage women to go out there when you go to an event and network with a purpose and focus on a few people. I mean, I actually have a tactic that I use when I go to any networking event. I get two or three business cards. That's it. I build two or three relationships. You get 20 business cards, you're not going to follow up on them, right? Right. You have no dynamic, nothing to kind of pick up in that rapport. So you want to make sure that you do do it with a purpose. And I don't mean in a sort of clandestine or manipulative way, but more in a focused way in terms of what are you trying to achieve. So I think that's really important. I think the third thing is, and Dave touched on it earlier as well, is it's important to build networks not just with women, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. at the end of the yes. day, if most of the men in leadership positions are men, you're going to want to reach out to more men as well. Exactly. So I think it's really important when you look at your own kind of board of directors, your own network, to make sure it's as diverse as possible and mm-hmm. has enough men and also diversity in other ways, whether it's cultural backgrounds, regional experiences, um, domain expertise. But look as much variety and diversity as possible when you aim to build your network. Those are all great tips, really. It's, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you said don't go into an event and leave with 20 cards. You know, be more focused and try to meet some very, you know, strategic people that are going to be able to help you. Um, one of the topics we, we talk about on this show a lot is unconscious bias. And I really wanted to, to make sure we, we talked about that for a few minutes because I think for women that are um, in positions in corporations but really looking to, to be promoted, um, sometimes they face that or we all face that. Um, unconscious bias is not just between men and women. It's across all, um, you know, nationalities and backgrounds. And so, um, Dave, when 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 you're speaking to a woman and I know that you do a lot of mentoring and she's she's facing this kind of unconscious bias in the workplace. In other words, where there's a, a man in a higher position and he's assuming maybe that she's not going to be uh, the right fit for that next spot up. Um, how do you what are some of the things you tell her to to get um, to get over that or through that? Well, Sue, I think it's a great point. And, and as you mentioned, unconscious bias uh, applies in many different uh, facets. Uh, I've experienced it in age. I've seen it. Um, you know, as, a, as a lawyer told me a long time ago, we're not, some of us are not um, of ethnic, particular ethnic backgrounds or not men or women, but we're all getting old. <laughs> so um, <laughs> age is a thing we've seen. So it's not just limited to gender. Right. But um, what, I, what, I, what I think works, and I love Patsy's approach, which is don't try to, boil, try to boil the ocean. You know, 20 cards is a great example. What I recommend, um, and I, this may be my legal training, but I like evidence-based discussions. So it's easy to not help someone or to disagree with a position that's opinion-based. It's much more difficult, and we, we apply this, I apply this in selling, in business development, so this is people in business development. But create evidence of your value proposition. So if I just say, hey, I'm great, look at me, uh, I deserve this promotion, that's one thing. If I can point with metrics and data and analytics to five things that I've accomplished in the last six months that have generated X, Y, and and Z revenue for a company, or has moved my, I've, I've handled five projects and they've been under budget and, and under time. Whatever the metrics are, I find that, that um, 
uh, men are much more prone to do that. They're much more prone to be self-promoting in this way, but they'll do it with facts and figures. You certainly, and Patsy and I have both seen it with sales and marketing people our whole careers. They're not shy about talking about, you know, revenue increases or, or in the marketing side, you know, people looked at our website more, bought more products. Um, but what I've seen work is really using factual information that is really difficult to disagree with and present the case very logically without a lot of emotion. Um, that makes a lot of progress. And that's true, again, for male, men or women. And that's particularly true at the more senior levels, where I see, you know, when we, the famous glass ceiling discussion or where people top out, not just women, is they tend to shy away once you get to the high, higher elevations in organizations. And there, you have less time to make your case. And so evidence is that much more compelling if you can muster it and put it together in an organized fashion and state your case. And no crying in the workplace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one of the things we touched on in the beginning of the show, but I want to come back to it, is what, why, I, for the listeners, I want them to understand and, and know why it matters. Why is it going to be more, um, why will a company be more um, revenue generating with this diversity at the top? What are some of the specifics in the research and the, in the analytics that we now have that say, you know, uh, the companies that have more women on the boards, not just diverse, are, are, are thriving? What are some of those specific reasons why? Patsy, what do you see in the work that you do? Well, we look at it kind of across the board in terms of building the business case, as, as we mentioned earlier, and it's got a couple of different components where you can actually measure the impact, right? So the first component is really about the talent that we have within the organization, and that's about employee engagement results. And you see they actually go up when people feel that they can actually bring their whole selves to work whether that's a woman or another type of individual that may be slightly different than the norm, if you will. And so you see a bottom line impact there because employee engagement leads to better productivity, again, leads to innovation and business results. So a softer measure, but one that actually does have hard line statistics associated with it. I think the second thing is if you actually look at those organizations, and we actually have a database at, at Thomson Reuters called Asset4, which actually measures our environmental, social, and governance data across 4,000 organizations globally. And what we see, actually, is that we can actually measure those areas based on the diversity of the board and the leadership teams themselves within the organization and see the impact, again, on the bottom line. What is our ESG score, which is partly made up of or primarily made up of diversity and inclusion? So you actually see that impact in terms of an index-based approach. Again, to Dave's point, actual statistics. The third piece is there's a whole host of research out there, and I could quote a number of different articles, some of which we've done internally and externally, most recently on women and boards, where you actually see that there's an impact on customer loyalty. And so engaging the customer on a longer term basis, mm -hmm. which again leads to business results. You can also look at it from a stock valuation perspective, and there's a number of pieces of research that have actually linked diversity on boards and, again, leadership teams, not just boards, to impact on how much revenue and profitability an organization has over time. So there's a number of different components one can look at in building that story. Yeah, it, it really is. It's so much more um, powerful to be able to have these numbers and these statistics now and use them when you, you know, go into an office and, and want to speak to somebody about the work that you've been doing and why why we need more diversity. Right. Um, one of the other things that I read about I thought was really interesting, um, and I think this pertained to Thomson Reuters in particular, 81 percent of consumers 
consider the social and environmental impacts of a company when they're deciding where to work. Um, I think there, you know, today um, there's so much talk in the news about um, initiatives and 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 being, you know, responsible socially, and the fact that people are thinking about that when they're going to apply for a job, I, th- I thought that was surprising, 81%. Um, what are some of the things Thomson Reuters is doing specifically to attract those types of people? Okay, so I'll, I'll take that first, okay. and Dave yeah. may have some views as well. Um, so very recently, we combined our diversity and inclusion function with our corporate responsibility function and our sustainability function. And I have the pleasure of looking after all three now. And the reason that we did that was to actually bring those stories together so that we could go out and talk to the talent that we have and the talent that we wish to acquire, as well as our customers, to talk about why it's important for Thomson Reuters to be a responsible business. So prospective employees who are looking at organizations today, as are investors, as are the regulators, as are the exchanges, they're looking at organizations that are paying attention to the environment, to the community, and to how we essentially give back in that way. And so, and we're seeing this particularly, in fact, citing another piece of research that was done by Thomson Reuters a few years ago around the millennials, right, of which, unfortunately, we're no longer part of. (laughs) Um, But the millennials are really, really focusing on this topic. And I think part of that figure is based on the millennials making decisions to join an organization that actually cares about the community, the environment, and how they give back. Yeah, the bigger picture. That's right. The bigger picture. Um, Dave, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a couple of things. One is... Um, more experiential, and then the other is backed on onto the data and external drivers for this. So um, there's a, a large piece of legislation, Dodd-Frank, that was passed about four years ago now. And as part of that legislation affecting uh, primarily financial services institutions, but not exclusively, um, for the first time ever um, in the U.S., uh, from the U.S. context, um, these regulators are actually um, – including a core component of their examination and review of financial services institutions as to the the component of women in the workplace and women in leadership roles. Um, It was not able to be mandated, which was the original language of the the statute. That got watered down through um, congressional lobbying. But it is being taken up, despite the fact that uh, it's sort of a um, uh, a, a more of a, um, a, a, a you know a, a, a language trying to get organizations to have the diversity that Patsy mentioned, but I see it now with the banks. Um, they're actively recruiting um, and promoting women for uh, managerial and um, board roles. I've been contacted by any number of recruiters um, who are the first line of defense or first line of blockage, frankly, in many of these things. Who are now calling me saying, do you know any qualified women? Because we need people for boards. Um, and so that's, those are all good signs. On the experiential side, I would say that you don't have to be a millennial, because I'm not, um, to want to work in a place where you have rich diversity, real diversity, not tokenism, where you have women and people of different ethnic and, and cultural backgrounds. It makes for better business outcomes, no doubt. I've seen it. I've been doing this for 30 years. And if you have a, a, a white males um, who've of a certain, a certain socioeconomic background who get together regularly for meetings, you'll have different outcomes than you will if you mix that group with people from different perspectives. So I love different perspectives and encourage when I see a meeting that's established that just has 
a certain um, cross-section. I say, listen, where's not just, you know, to go get tokens, tokenisms, uh, you know, where's the white male, where's the black female, but to get real people into the room because it makes for better discussion, better decision-making, and, and frankly, more fun to work. Yeah. Um, um, that's why I come to work every day is because I like to mix with a lot of different people from different backgrounds and help change my attitudes and backgrounds they have over the years and, and hopefully continue well. Mm-hmm. Continue to. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with Patsy Doerr and Dave Curran of Thomson Reuters. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the city of light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Women to Watch uh, on WWDB Talk 860. I'm here today with Patsy Doerr. Uh, she is the Global Head of Corporate Responsibility and Inclusion uh, from Thomson Reuters. And joining us by phone is Dave Curran, who is the Global Director for Risk and Compliance uh, for Thomson Reuters as well. And we're having a great discussion about uh, the importance of diversity, inclusion, and inclusion in the workplace and, and why it's important for women to to, to speak up and, and try to gain their rightful place um, in, in different industries. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about was why women in particular feel that they are often battling um, in the workplace exactly what those those obstacles are. In other words, it's not always necessarily the unconscious bias that we talked about, but sometimes it comes from within. And I think we can be our own worst enemy. Um, I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on on what those specific things are that, that women kind of carry with them that hold them back. Patsy, we'll start with you. Sure. No, I, th- I think some of this gets back to the, the, the research that we were talking about earlier around kind of gender dynamics and what some of the norms are around women and behavior. So some of it being around taking risks, some of it being around networking. But I also think it gets back very much to what Dave mentioned earlier and the importance of mentors and sponsors. And I would actually put a higher emphasis on sponsors because sponsors are your advocates, right? They're not just giving you advice from the sidelines. 
You've got to get out there and prove yourself and not just ask for things or come forward with requests, but actually demonstrate your skills actively and find opportunities to do that so that you have natural sponsors advocating on your behalf. It's a much more difficult role than playing a mentorship role, although you need both, but the advocacy piece is absolutely critical to success. I think what we see in organizations, I've seen it in the investment banks I've worked in, I see it at Thomson Reuters over the years as well, I think this whole concept of unconscious bias is rather the norm, right? We're all very comfortable or most comfortable or with people that are more similar to ourselves, right? So what we're trying to do, and frankly, unconscious bias is really the root of all diversity initiatives. I mean, you've got to help leaders, managers, and employees understand that and have that bias become conscious, So what we do, actually, is we've built into our leadership development initiatives programs around unconscious bias, helping people understand what it is that they're looking for when they're actually interviewing candidates, identifying teams, building teams, or looking to advance team members. But what are those blockers that are in your brain that you think about when you're making these decisions? I actually call it putting a diversity lens on how you function, right? So look at things with your diversity lens on and always be conscious of doing that. So again, we go from the unconscious to the conscious. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've been very clear on is that this is not a separate skill. Diversity, unconscious bias is not something that you do separate from your daily role. If you are a leader or a manager, this is part of how you should operate. And so we've deliberately at Thomson Reuters, and I know other organizations have done similar things, have built that unconscious bias development exercise into our leadership programs. So if you're a leader, you're expected to be that behave that way. And at the end of the day, you're now held accountable as part of the performance management system. And your personal rating is actually based on, partly based on your contribution to diversity and inclusion. So it's built into the system, if you will, and that helps change the culture over time. Right. And and the repetition of that is, is that constant reminder so that you're being mindful in the moment of how you might be judging someone that's standing before you. Exactly. Yeah. Dave, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, obviously, I'm being a man, I have to just look at it from my lens. And um, these programs are very, very important uh, at Thompson and at other companies that I've worked at that really made a conscious effort to address these biases and issues. Um, what, I, what I've seen with success on a very granular level on a management from management level is to actually confront these kinds of questions and biases in a way that's not um, adversarial but supportive of people. So when I hear about, you know, because men, I think Patsy said it best when she said, you know, we tend to want to associate with people we like and that are like us. Um, and I've I've actually had the opposite approach in my hiring. I specifically go for people that are very different, especially in my leadership roles. People are different from me, and I encourage anybody who's ever hired and is hiring to really look at a broader landscape. And again, this is not gender-based, but it's skills-based. It can be a combination of factors. But what I've seen work very successfully is sort of debriefs after interviews. In particular, if you thought that a candidate was strong. Let's say you had a female candidate and you thought that woman was strong, and then you, later in the system you wound um, that person wound up not getting the position. I've literally done a timeout and say, okay, let's look at that process. Were we fair? Did we take into account all skills? Um, did we look at this person, um, you know, through a lens? And in particular, if, if the hiring committee, so to speak, was men. I think it's important to confront these kinds of issues right out in the open. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty direct guy, and and I think if you don't raise these issues, that it, the system will 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 persist, and you have to 
Uh, and again, not to give a person a position because of their gender or background, but have you fairly assessed and tried to mitigate these biases? You know, that that's so important, Dave. I, I, you use the word tokenism, and I, <clears throat> I, I see that sometimes. I mean, we, there's initiatives going on within corporations, and some of the corporations are doing it because they believe in it. And others are doing it just as a demonstration of, yes, we're, you know, we're focusing on diversity. And I think not until we have all, you know, uh, industries doing it for the right reasons are we really going to see some change. What do you think about that, Patsy? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, one thing I personally feel strongly about and also on behalf of the organization is that this is an exercise of inclusion. The word diversity is almost becoming old and overused, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about diversity, you tend to think about, to your point, tokenism, policies, quotas, programs, things of that nature. What we're really trying to do as a community and as an organization is to build an environment that allows for every aspect of diversity. To Dave's point earlier, our definition of diversity is diversity of thought, style, experience, and approach as well as race, ethnicity, gender, and sexual orientation. Right. And I tell you that because at the end of the day, we're trying to build a culture that's inclusive of all of these styles so we can actually leverage those approaches to, again, drive innovation and drive business results. So one very specific example of a program that we've put in place, I think it's important to highlight that, is that we've mandated across the organization at middle management and above diverse slates. And that's a very deliberate exercise in the sense that when you're hiring for a role, you're now required to have one to two different variations of diversity on that slate. Now, the beauty of that concept is twofold. Number one, you're helping people utilize their diversity lens, as we talked about earlier, and break down their unconscious bias so their slate isn't the list of people they know very well and who are very much like them. But number two, it gets to your question a moment ago. We are absolutely not propagating any form of tokenism or quotas. You do not need to hire the diverse person, nor do we want to push that. You should hire the best person for the role. Exactly. Just consider different options. Yes, exactly. But what I often find is that we, you use the word mandate. Right. And I think sometimes there's a pushback from people um, when something is mandated, right? Mm -hmm. it, it should be natural. It should be done for the right reasons. Um Dave, talk to me about some of the um, experiences that you've had when you're working in situations where something, you know, the, the conversation is that there, you know, something is mandated so that we move towards diversity and you, you're seeing a pushback from someone who says, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that should be mandated. I think it should just be something that, that's done naturally. Do you see that, I guess? Uh, I, I do. I just wanted to add a point also that uh, I didn't want to get lost in the conversation um, was that we can, Patsy mentioned paying it forward, which is, you know, I love the expression and I love the philosophy. And, and I think um, I, would, I would wrap that around empathy. Um, overall, there's a lack of empathy um, in a variety of different contexts for job seekers, for career sponsors and the like. And I think if you put yourself in the shoes of the person who you're, for example, interviewing in this context or looking to prom um, potentially as a candidate for promotion among co uh, other contenders. And you say, have I, if I were in that situation, would I think that I was treated fairly? That's how I look at it. And I think, it's interesting, I hadn't thought of the word mandate until now, but it, it does start with man. <laughs> uh, and, uh, <laughs> Maybe uh, that's uh, why there's a pushback. <laughs> yeah, men, men do not, in general, and I'm not speaking on behalf of all men, but I certainly know that if I'm told to do something, and I've seen very bad reactions. So 
one of the things that Thompson, we, I think, has done very well versus some other companies I've worked with is um, it's not the quota system or mandates these things because they, they will people will find a way around those. Um, and they will reject them. So even if you do hire, I've seen this happen in other organizations where you hire by, to, by, by quota, and the person does not succeed. And I know there's, there's statistics, I don't have them to hand, about the fact that if you actually try and force diversity or inclusion, it doesn't work. Right. Because they won't work. People will, you know, people will um, not support them. They will not help them, and therefore they, they may get hired, but they fail. And I think it's all for, for an organization being members of a team is we're only as good as our weakest link, only as strong as our weakest link. And um, we need to make sure that, uh, those, that the people we support are qualified, but also that if they need additional help, be empathetic and understand that, in particular, if you weren't part of – um, a process that gave you the skills and background, then try and figure out a way. So this is what mentors do well, you know, <clears throat> having encouraging women to take additional courses or to try for projects in a company that may not be so appealing, um, but that would give good skills and background um, for you in your future endeavors. I've I've seen, and I will use a generational comment here. I've seen millennials less likely and less interested in taking on difficult projects, um, because they're not as appealing sometimes. They don't have as much sex appeal, so to speak. Um, and I think that's a mistake. And um, uh, so I'm a boomer generation person, and we did what we were told to do in some cases. And some of them really worked out, you know, stuff that I did 20 years ago um, has really helped me now. And I think having that kind of attitude in general, but particularly for women in the workplace, is to spot these kinds of things and to see gaps, for example, in things that might not be in their traditional career trajectory and to encourage them to do some things that might be out of their comfort zone. Yeah, that, that's so true. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk about um, the, the topic of STEM and, and women and young girls. Um, I think that we all know that um, girls in general can add a lot of value to the field of science and technology and um, uh, math and and we need more of that. We need more of that creativity. I wanted to get you, both of your thoughts on how we can encourage young women. Uh, Patsy, you happen to sit on the board of uh, is it Mary Marymount Marymount, which is an all girls school. I see the value in that environment, that academic environment. My daughter went to an all girls school, and they really push independence and you can do anything you want. Uh, but they take it beyond kind of that cheerleading, you know, message. And I, I think we really desperately need more women in the STEM field. And I want to know what your thoughts are on how we can encourage that. What are some very strategic things we can do um, to get young girls to follow those, um, those passions if they have them, if they're meant for that field? Well, absolutely. Well, this is definitely an ongoing challenge. There, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I'm in the process right now of planning a couple of different events focused okay. on women in technology, yeah. you know, actually for middle to senior management to actually encourage people even at that level to pursue this this avenue, if you will. Um, getting back to my experience at Marymount. So Marymount is actually the high school that I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sit on the board and run the alumni association. And um, I'm actually a math, a STEM kid myself. So I was a math and science kid. who ha- my, I have a BS in biology, a pre-med undergrad. I ended up going a totally different direction, but was basically taught that that was an angle that I was good at. My, my, my philosophy around that has multiple aspects to it. 
Number one is, I think this gets back to playing up your strengths. I'm a big believer philosophically as an individual and as a leader in this organization that it's most effective to play up people's strengths. Mm -hmm. So if we can actually find those strengths early as opposed to development areas, don't ignore your development areas, but play up your strengths. Find them early. Start young. Start with the girls in grade school, in high school. Expose them to as many possibilities as possible. At Marymount, we're doing a number of career development series where we're actually having various women and men leaders come in and talk about their experiences from STEM. We're doing this at the university level in terms of going out and speaking to those organizations that are focused on engineering, science, math degrees, things of that nature, mm -hmm. and actually starting that dialogue really, really young. Yeah. And then as we hire from universities, we're actually trying to bring in more STEM graduates because they are out there. And if you look at the statistics, it's actually the numbers are going up daily. They are. Yeah. Now, the issue is once they get into the organization, how do we actually support them? Mm -hmm. And this gets back to Dave's point earlier. I think this is where you see diversity versus Versus inclusion, right? Right, because yes. you can bring in as much diversity as possible, which is kind of called the Noah's Ark syndrome. If you've read any research on that, but if you bring a whole bunch of diverse people together, in this particular case, women in the STEM area, but you don't integrate them properly, right. it's not going to work. That's right. Right. So you've right. got to build the culture that actually supports that through learning and development of our managers and our leaders appreciating that skill set encouraging that skill set, and then actually playing it up to advance their careers. Yeah. What a great point. I'm picturing, you know, a boardroom and a table full of diversity, but the, but the people are, no one's listening, right? They're not, they're not speaking up and, and raising their hand and becoming a part of the conversation. Right. Um, they're, yeah, they're Dave. Moving, what, they're actually pushing their agendas versus yeah. listening to their colleagues. Listening is a, is a skill that's really critical. It is. It is lost, you know. Yeah. Well, and when uh, getting back to your point of, um, you know, hiring and doing it just for the tokenism of it, the, the people that are hired for that reason, they feel it's not authentic. Right. They, they I think they sense that they're there because they fit in, you know, a certain uh, number or category. Uh, but then if they don't really feel that they're a team member, then it's not going to work. That's right. and, and I've seen the same thing with STEM. I've, I have three daughters, as was mentioned, and all three of them are much more biased towards liberal arts than they are towards sciences and math, although they each has excelled in science and math. Mm -hmm. And and so I've, I've heard them complain about the pressure that is put upon them to, um, to focus on technology and focus on math and science when it's really not of interest to them. Mm, yeah. um, and so it's, it, it, it can actually have a boomerang effect on, on girls who... Aren't, don't want to be biologists. And, you know, as it's interesting, Patsy's background, I, I found that fascinating the first time we met. But, and she went in a different direction. But obviously today in the business environment, you need to know um, more math um, and science and technology just to be a marketing person. Exactly. Uh, just to be in communications. I mean, yes. Years ago, you didn't. Now, uh, the very nature of what, for example, Thomson Reuters business is and other large companies, Google. and I was just out in San Francisco and ran a thought leadership program there with a bunch of the technology companies. And um, it was with lawyers and compliance people, but I can guarantee you that they're much better educated today about technology and science and the like, intellectual property, than they would have been 20 years ago, because that's what their businesses sell. <laughs> and so whether you like it or not, um, you, the girls today need to understand these things, whether or not that's going to be their particular um, they're going to be an engineer, so to speak, but they need to understand engineering um, just to be stay ahead in the, in the workplace. So there are important skills that they need to develop. And, and so what I encourage with my girls is saying, listen, you don't need to be a biologist or 
uh, computer programmer. But you do need to understand those disciplines and how they impact revenue and the like and our society at large. Yeah, at the very least, you know, uh, technology. You, you just Absolutely. you have to, you know, you have to have that interest and pursue it, you know, in the right way. Um, but I think it's important. You mentioned, you know, your daughter's feeling the pressure to, you know, maybe go into a STEM field, and it's really not their strength. Um, one of the things, you know, th- we could do a whole show on um, IQ versus EQ, mm. and you know, the importance of the emotional quotient is is just as important um, as somebody with a high IQ. And I talk to my daughter about that all the time because I'm someone who clearly was much more drawn to the liberal arts than the science and the math. And I struggled with, am I as smart, you know, as the person next to me? Um, Patsy, what's your take on that as far as young girls today, again, um, getting the message that they can do and be all that they want, um, but really staying true to what it is that their interests and strengths are? Right. Well, it's a great question, and I think it's important to find the right balance. Now, my daughter's nine, so we haven't quite focused on this this particular challenge. Well, you can't start too early. You're you're showing her by example, clearly. Exactly. Interestingly enough, her best subjects are math and science, and she already knows she wants to be a veterinarian, so maybe she's going to go down that path as it is. But but in all seriousness, I think, again, it it really gets back to two things in my mind. I'm a big believer in just role modeling in general, right? And the more stories that we can tell, just as you do here on your show, right, of actual women out there practicing these skills, to Dave's point, maybe not applying them on a daily basis, but having that mindset and that thought process, it's absolutely critical in today's world. You know, not only the technology piece, but also being able to have the financial acumen to be on a board in particular. And also, if you look at organizations today, we are much more focused on metrics and data Mm -hmm. than ever before, no matter what the industry is, whether it's advertising, whether it's fashion, whether it's finance. So these are skills that fit within a broader spectrum beyond STEM, although if you're in the STEM area, you get a better understanding of them. But it's a much broader mindset shift. And I think if we can expose young girls and even older women and, you know, as they as they progress in their careers to how one can actually develop those skills, utilize those skills, but within the framework that makes sense for them yeah, to what exactly. they're interested in. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. In other words, yeah. analytics, the, the term analytics and data used to scare the heck out of me. <laughs> and and what I've learned from doing this show is it, when you when you kind of lay it out there and and read it and look at it, it's interesting. It, it, it allows you to be creative and do things differently. Um, and it, it can be quite, you know, quite interesting. It's, it's not something that women who aren't particularly good at math should shy away from. No matter what business they're doing. Absolutely. And you can actually take that data, step back, look at the trends, and have some really interesting nuggets to share when you're telling any story in a creative context. Yeah. Um, Patsy, I'd love to ask you quickly, because, you know, you you have been extremely successful. Um, Again, you know, and you've worked in some top companies and some top spots and you're uh, doing a lot of traveling and you're you're speaking and 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 your position, the work that you're doing at Thomson Reuters is, is a tough area. So when I talk about the real story behind the title, which is my tagline, um, I'd love to know what are some of your challenges? What are some of the things that you face on a day-to-day that are hard for you? I'm sure it doesn't all come easy. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about those things. Sure. No, I like that. I like the real person be- behind the title. Um, well, first of all, I'm probably a little bit crazy energy-wise. Um, I have trouble <laughs> sitting still. There's there's no doubt about that. So variety is is really kind of the key to, to my entire life. You know, personally and professionally, I have two children, actually 
actually one happens to be a boy. Um, but just in terms of keeping up that variety professionally and personally, you know, my running is very important to me, my children, my travel. These are things that I just try to keep up with. So the challenge really is, and it sounds rather cliche because I'm not finding it particularly difficult at the moment, but it's just trying to have enough time, right? Mm-hmm. But my view on that is just prioritize the things that you need versus the things that you want. Yeah. And that's the advice I give people. So for me, the challenge is just being able to do that regularly. I think in this role, particularly getting back to your question, it's a brand new function, right? So the challenge this year has been how do you actually bring three functions together under one umbrella on a global basis? And how do you actually tie those themes together into one story? And so that's been quite a challenge. And I also inherited people from other parts of the organization in topics that are not my natural background. My natural background is not sustainability and corporate responsibility. I was asked to do this role for two reasons, because I know how to build a team and I know how to speak on behalf of the organization. And those are both very important to this role. So, of course, that's a challenge for me in terms of at this stage of my career, at this level, learning new topic areas, which is, by the way, why I took the role. It makes it much more exciting. So it's a challenge and an opportunity at the same time. So trying to find that balance is really the key. Yeah. Well, you can see your enthusiasm for it so that, you know, you get through it because of your interest in it. And it's an exciting position. Um, Dave, we just have a moment left. If you could just um, give me some last um, thoughts on on your girls and and what you hope to see for them uh, moving forward as far as being leaders and and really confident in their roles. I, I think Patsy hit it on the head. It's really being a role model, um, and I, I look at life as doing the right thing under any circumstance, um, which often uh, requires some difficult uh, maneuvering in in large organizations. And if you're focused on doing the right thing. Inclusion is doing the right thing. And having men and women and people of other backgrounds, um, varied backgrounds, in your work environment and your personal environment um, is good for you. <laughs> and I hate to sound um, so, so spiritual about it, but it, I, I look at life that way. And I want to be around people that I want to be around, and I want to help people if, they, if I feel like they've been shunted or not or obstacles have been placed in front of them, whether they have a disability, whether um, they're a woman who hasn't been given the same opportunities as men, whether they're a person of color who hasn't had the same opportunities. I look at it as my mission in life to help people who don't necessarily have the same opportunities that I've been presented with. And, and I think if you do that and, and you present that to your children, whether they're boys or girls, um, um, hopefully some of it will rub off and that's what they'll take with them. And, and I would just one thing is it's not just in your workplace. And we at Thompson and in my life, I've tried to impact vendors and supply chain and people in the community, a broader community, with this kind of infection of inclusion. Um, so it's not doesn't stop at your doorstep. So if your company's doing a great job, but you see that you're working with a contractor that isn't, speak up. Um, especially if you have leverage, if you're working for a company who has hired that contractor. You can use that opportunity to talk with the senior people of that organization to say that we want better representation in our, in our uh, project, these kinds of things. So. Yeah, exactly. Great, great point, Dave. Um, that's all the time we have today. I wish we had more time. We never do. And I thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. Patsy uh, Doerr, uh, Global Head of Corporate Responsibility and Inclusion, and Dave Curran, Global Director for Risk and Compliance, both from Thomson Reuters. Great conversation. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to reach out to my website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone.